Norm, your computers are in my office, by the way. Your computers are in my office. Um, well, good morning. It's, uh, I first want to thank everybody who uh, was here Tuesday night when we were visited by uh, Dr. Dan Morheim. especially want to thank Kendall uh, and BJ and Marlene for their help with, the, uh, with uh, putting the reception together, as well as Joe for taking all the beer home after. Um, we... Uh, yeah, <laughs> we we uh, I, I, just to follow up on that, uh, I think those of us who were there appreciated the opportunity to hear from Dr. Morheim about uh, the various end of life decisions that uh, we all will at some point uh, be likely to have to make, either for ourselves or for somebody else, and the importance of uh, making sure that we think about those things and make those decisions. Uh, before we find ourselves having to make that decision in a very short amount of time under very emotional circumstances. Uh, so uh, we do have a couple of copies of his book that we'll have available in the library uh, and uh, would uh, encourage you to pay attention to uh, the issues that he raises. You may not agree with his conclusions on every particular question uh, of, of how you handle uh end-of-life care. In fact, I know for a fact that there are people here who would disagree with him and with each other, uh, but he raises the important issues that uh, that we all need to consider. So uh, thanks to all of you who are part of making that happen. I uh, I guess this is conference week at New Hope. Uh, Joe and Ann are going to this conference in D.C. next week. I was up in Princeton this week. Uh, I had the chance to go to a conference that uh, is absolutely irrelevant to what I do. The Romans uh, conference was on Romans chapters 5 through 8. <laughs> so evidently the good folks at Princeton, uh, when they were planning their bicentennial celebrations, uh, found out what I was going to be preaching next year and uh, set up the conference just for me, which I appreciate. Um, but it was a great opportunity to, to uh, learn from some very, very smart people. Um, uh, there's a few things that are as humbling as going to one of these academic conferences. Uh, but it, 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 was, it was also a great opportunity for me because when I go to these conferences, sometimes I get a chance to meet some of my heroes. Um, I, I, I remember the very first time I went to one of these academic conferences, and I see somebody walk by and I notice his name tag. I'm like, I, I read this textbook in seminary. And then, you know, I, I, I find out that th- these people are real people, and some of them, in fact, are jerks. But... Uh, I also <coughs> find out that, that many of them are, are wonderful folks who deeply love Jesus and are passionate about understanding his word and helping people like me to be able to uh, do what I do. And I'm very grateful. One of the people I got a chance to meet at this conference is a longtime hero of mine, a woman named Fleming Rutledge. I think we have a picture that we can throw up. Um, it, she was one of the first uh, women ordained as a priest in the Episcopal Church back in the 70s, uh, is an outstanding preacher and communicator in general. Uh, imagine if Maureen Donahue had been born a Virginia Episcopalian instead of a Brooklyn Catholic, and that's, that's kind of what you, what you get with, with Fleming. She's marvelous, uh, wonderfully kind, and, and uh, has a, a, a great pastor's heart. Um, I would definitely not want to get on her bad side, uh, but... But one of the things that, that I uh, was struck by at this conference was the fact that this woman, who is now 75 years old and has been preaching the gospel for uh, 
almost twice as long as I've been alive, uh, is somebody who continues to struggle and continues to wrestle with understanding this word that God has given us and with figuring out how to not only understand it herself, but how to convey it, how to use the tools of the language that we have to convey what it is that God had to say. And so as we've been talking about in chapter 3 in Romans, we get these words that are very important and that also, incidentally, are not always the easiest to translate. This will be a little quiz time to see if anybody has been paying attention. Um, Dikaiosune, anybody remember what Dikaiosune is? Dikaiosune theu is something of God, the what? The righteousness of God. Righteousness, or possibly what else could it mean? Justice. It could mean the justice of God. Right. And so it's a huge question. Right. When when Paul says in uh, in chapter three of Romans. In verse 21, but now apart from Torah, Dikaiosune Theu has been revealed. Is he talking about a righteousness that comes from God? Is he talking about a righteousness that is ours that God gives us that avails before him? Is he talking about God's own righteousness? Is he talking about, and specifically then, is he talking about God's righteousness uh, in terms of his faithfulness to his covenant promises? Or is he talking about God's righteousness in terms of his just dealings with all of humanity? Is he talking about God's general justice? These are all, as we've seen, different ways that the same Greek word or phrase can be understood. And the other big word we've looked at, and we looked at a couple weeks ago, was pistis. Anybody remember what pistis might mean? Faith, right? Faith, but it could also mean faithfulness. It can mean faith in the sense of belief, right? Or it could mean faithfulness, faith in the sense of being faithful. And so when you have pistis Christu, that is the faith or faithfulness of or in Jesus Christ, you realize you have a few options. As Paul talking when he says that this dikaiosune theu, this righteousness of God or justice of God, has been disclosed, uh, that is the righteousness of God, whether that's God's own righteousness or righteousness that comes from God, through pistis Christu, through belief in Jesus, Is there a righteousness that comes from God that is ours because we believe in Jesus? Or is Paul saying there is the revelation of God's own righteousness in the very act of Jesus' faithfulness? Kind of different emphases, right? Even arguably different things being said. And the fun part is that the Greek can go either way. There's no grammatical rule that you can apply to simply say it's obviously one or the other. And so sometimes when you go to these conferences and you hear one paper and then you hear the next paper, people interpreting it differently, it almost looks like the football game on the cover of your bulletin. you got one referee saying that this team has the ball, the other team says the other team has the ball. They both clearly think they're right. <laughs> but ultimately the guy in the white hat is. We know how that goes. 
One of the things that uh, I, I had the chance to talk uh, with Fleming about was was the, the a word that she has found useful in translating dikaiosune, uh, which is rectification. Right? We talked about how the fact that we have we have these these the word justice uh, or justification comes from the Latin side of you know English is sort of the bastard child of Latin, uh, really French and and Old Anglo-Saxon. And, and, and from the French side, we get justice or justification, justitia, which is, carries a certain set of connotations for us. And then from the other side, we have uh, rictuis, I think is probably the way it might have been pronounced, but the idea of righteousness, right-wising, making things right. Uh, and she said that she's found the word rectification to be a good one, because it conveys not just the sense of somebody being declared righteous. It's not just that you go to court and the judge says that you're acquitted, but it has a sense of making things that are not right, right. Right? Right? Right. And the only problem with it, we we talked about this yesterday, actually. I I said, yeah, I was kind of looking at the looking at the etymology of the words, and rectification probably comes from a different place from right-wising unless there's some deep historical Indo-European root that they both come from. Uh, when, we, when we have that uh, word, uh, the, the, the stem rect, right, you get that in a rectangle. Kara, what's a rectangle? Right, and, and so what, what do we know about the angles in a rectangle? They're all right angles, right? What kind of angle is this? Aw, cute. And what kind of angle is this? Right? Yep, Tim. Yeah, this is a Tim angle. And then we have a right angle, right? So when something is rectified, it's made right. It's made straight. But what, what Fleming was saying was that, that rectification conveys not just God's grace, not just his forgiveness, not just his ability to overlook, but his power. God's power, God's ability to set things right. So you might read this in Romans 3 in the passage we've looked at in the last couple of weeks, but now apart from Torah, the ability of God to set things right has been disclosed. The power of God to fix what is broken has been disclosed. And, and what I like about that, and where I find that helpful, is that it does remind us of just how broken everything is. Sometimes when we think about the ideas of God's grace and God's forgiveness as it's applied to us, we think primarily about the fact that we have sinned, that we have offended God. Right, David says in Psalm 51, against the thee, the only have I sinned. And so God can forgive us. And so we can receive God's forgiveness so that we are no longer under condemnation by God. But there's still a mess, right? Think about, I think about my office and Miss Mary Barr, the kids as you know, Miss Mary Barr takes great care 
of my library, making sure that it stays in order and that everything belongs where it is and that I'm reminded that we need more space and that I need to do something about uh, all these books. Um, I, had <laughs> I had a friend tell me that she was interested in getting me a book. I said, I may need to clear that by Mary. <laughs> but, you know, the kids, the edge kids, when they meet, they meet in my office. And, you know, every once in a while something happens. Over the years, there have been people who have been in my office that have accidentally broken things, like I did, for example. We had this lovely, just lovely figurine that was left by the church behind before us here. I have no idea why they would have left this behind, because it was so lovely. Uh, it was of a, uh, a chorister. A, a, a boy in the coral gown singing with his book, and and it was it was uh, priceless. Um, and one day, tragically, I knocked it off the shelf and it broke. Now that happens, but there have been other times when other people have been in my office and have knocked things off the shelves and they've broken. Remember, there is one family; they're not here anymore. Uh, one of the kids knocked one of my things off the shelf, and it broke. And I forgave this little boy. But was everything right then? I mean, he broke my, th- my thing. I forgave him. But was everything right? No. No, he said no. His mom said, no, we're going to make it right. We're going to replace that. And this, in this case, was something that could be replaced. But what if next week, after this, during the service, the kids are in my office, and one of them happens just accidentally to set on fire uh, my great-grandfather's old Greek testament, or spill coffee on it or something, right? Well, that can't really be made right, can it? I mean, I, I would certainly forgive, probably forgive whatever child did that. <laughs> but, but that can't really be made right, can it? I, I can't go to 7-Eleven and pick up another copy of my grandfather's old Bible. We as human beings are that unique and we are that precious. So when we sin and fall short of the glory of God, as Paul says, sure, we can be forgiven, but there is some right-wising that needs to happen that is utterly beyond our power. And I think Paul is, in writing Romans, dealing with at least part of his audience that is not necessarily thinking in those terms. Remember, he's writing to the church in Rome. It's a church comprised of both Jews and Gentiles, Jewish followers of Jesus and Gentile followers of Jesus. And it seems, from what we've seen in the first few chapters of this book, that there is a certain sense of arrogance on the part of at least some of these Jewish believers. Right? I mean, Paul starts off by talking about how awful those wicked Gentiles are with all the bad, nasty, naughty things that they do. And he does this in a way that you can just see the, the Jewish folks in his audience just cheering along, saying, yeah, they're bad. They're, they're awful. They're really wicked. They do nasty 
mean awful, terrible things. And then in chapter 2, he says, and now you. You, don't you very do the very same things? Oh. And he goes on to demonstrate in chapter 3 that everybody, everybody, Jew and Gentile alike, is under power of sin. And that just because, for the sake of Paul's fellow Jews, just because they grew up with Torah, just because they went through circumcision, just because they would follow the prescriptions of the law as best they can, that is not taking care of the problem. For one thing, Paul says, the problem's bigger than you. There's a lot more that needs to be rectified than just you and your community. But for another thing, frankly, it's not even rectifying you. You guys are a mess. Whatever the law says, whatever Torah says, it says to those who are under Torah, just as it says to everybody else. So Jew and Gentile alike, Paul says, are under the power of sin. So because of this, we now have this righteousness of God, God's own justice, revealed just as the law and the prophets attested through either our faith in Jesus or Jesus' own faithfulness for all who believe. There's no difference, no difference between Jew and Gentile. Everybody sinned, and therefore everybody falls short of the glory of God. But they are rectified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God publicly displayed him at his death as this atonement offering accessible through faith. And this was to demonstrate his righteousness. God's demonstrating his own justice, his own righteousness, his own ability to set things right, to rectify what needs to be rectified because God in his forbearance had passed over all the sins previously committed. And this was also to demonstrate his righteousness now, right now in the present time, so that he may be just and the justifier, just and the one who justifies the one who lives because of Jesus' faithfulness or who lives by faith in Jesus. This is the big story that Paul is telling, right? This is not just a story about individual people who somehow screw up and need God to forgive them and pat them on the head and send them in the right direction. This is a story of cosmic rebellion. This is a story of all of humanity, Jew and Gentile alike, rebelling against God's gracious commands, against his law whether it was revealed to them in Torah or simply in in the very nature of things, Jew and Gentile alike have violated God's commands. Everybody finds him or herself before the judgment seat of God without anything to say in his or her defense. And it's not just that we have offended God, it's that we have harmed one another that we have wrought destruction on the creation that God has given us. There is a mess that needs to be fixed. And so, Paul says in verse 27, so what on earth do you think you are doing 
by boasting about something. Right? Who, who might have been boasting? Jews might have been boasting. Hey, we're, you know, we're Jews. We got Torah. God loves us. We're a special chosen people. Who else might have been boasting? Gentiles might have been boasting. Hey, hey, we got Jesus. We're good. We're washing the blood of the Lamb. Right? We're not perfect, just forgiven. In case of rapture, this car will not be occupied. Paul says, what, <laughs> what are you fools doing? Right? What, kids, remember, what are the, the, uh, what, what's one of the big uh, impediments to peace? Jerks. Remember the big impediments to peace? And what do, what do jerks sometimes do? What do they act like sometimes to be jerks? Idiots. They sometimes act like idiots. And so Paul's like, listen, you idiots. Don't, don't go on boasting. You have nothing to boast about. It is excluded. And by what principle is it excluded? What law? Is it by the principle of, of works? No, it's excluded by the principle of faith. Right? Anybody ever heard of something that's ergonomic? Right? Ergonomic comes from the Greek words uh, erga and namu. Erga is works, namu is law. So an ergonomic chair is something that 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 fits with the principles or the laws of the way that people ought to work. I had one of those when I was in high school. You know the ones where you kind of half kneeled and half sat, and that may have something to do with how screwed up my knees are today. But Paul is saying no. This is not. We're not talking about. Ergonamu, we're talking about faith or faithfulness. See, we reckon, we've been maintaining, this is the argument I'm making here, Paul, that a person is declared righteous, is justified, is rectified by faith or by Jesus' faithfulness apart from Ergonamu, apart from works of the law. And, and maybe Paul is there saying apart from strictly obeying every particular command in Torah. Maybe there he's talking about just general sort of moral righteousness. But he's saying that none of that is going to get you there. The only way we're going to get fixed, the only way we're going to be made right, the only way the mess gets cleaned up is through faith. I mean, what? Look, are you suggesting, Paul, are you suggesting God is just the God of the Jews? Really? Really? I mean, isn't he the God of the Gentiles? I mean, look, there's one God, right? You think about the Shema, the classic prayer of Judaism. Hear, O Israel, Lord our God, the Lord is one. You say he's one, right? You don't say, Lord, he is one, and then there's another one, and there's another one over there. No, that's not what he says. No. God is one. He's the God of the Gentiles, too. And since he's, since he is one, he doesn't have split personalities. God will justify the circumcised, i.e. the Jews, by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Same principle. Same way. And, and now here in verse 31, Paul is talking to the idiots, trying to throw up some stupid counter-argument. Does this mean that we're vacating the law? Does this mean that we're de- denying its power, that we're undercutting it through faith? Are we, are we saying that somehow if, if this faith thing happens, then Torah is worthless? No! Hell no! 
in fact, Paul says. Megenoita. Remember that, kids, right? Megenoita. That's if somebody says something really stupid. That's the proper response. Megenoita. No. In fact, Paul says we are upholding Torah. What we're saying about faith here is, in fact, upholding Torah. So what do we know at this point in Paul's argument? Let's review as he is coming to the close of chapter 3. What do we know at this point? First, we know that nobody has any grounds for boasting. Nobody. Whatever advantages you have, they may be nice advantages, they may be pluses, but nobody has any grounds for boasting. Second is that God does His work of rectification. God justifies, He makes righteous, He rectifies by what? Not by sneezing, by what? By faith. By pistis, by faith, or Jesus' faithfulness. That's how God does what He does. Not by works of the law. God does it by faith. And, number three, we know that God rectifies whom? By faith? By pistis? Everybody He rectifies. Everybody gets rectified gets rectified by faith. There, there's no side door. There's no alternate means of making this happen. Everybody who gets justified gets justified by faith. So if you see somebody and you know they're justified, they're justified by faith. And number four, what we know is Paul is saying that none of this, not a single scrap of this, undermines Torah. And here he's specifically directing this to his Jewish hearers, Jewish followers of Jesus, who are concerned, who are saying, now hang on a second, there was this, you know, whole thing about God choosing a people and giving them Torah and giving them a way to live, and it seemed really important to God that we follow all of this, and now what, now you're talking about faith. Paul, what? None of this undermines Torah? No, Paul says. None of this undermines Torah. So we know, number one, nobody has any grounds for boasting. Number two, God rectifies by faith. Number three, God rectifies everybody who is getting rectified by that faith, faithfulness. So we know, number four, that none of this undermines Torah. But I think we also know, number five, that Paul has not convinced everybody yet. The fact that he is still continuing this conversation with his imaginary interlocutor, the fact that he is still writing as though he has a conversation partner who is not persuaded means that Paul has not convinced everybody yet, and he knows it. He knows, he's a smart guy, he knows that he hasn't convinced every, everybody yet. This is one reason that we have 16 chapters of Romans and we're only chapter 3. But in fact, what he is going to be going into next and where we're going to be for the next couple of months is in chapter 4 where he is going to try to demonstrate to the people who are as yet unconvinced that what he is saying, in fact, is consistent with Torah, is consistent with the way that God has dealt with the people he's chosen over the years. And to do that, he goes back to the great hero of the faith, Abraham, the man from the Old Testament other than God who is 
mentioned more than any other in the New Testament. Very important guy, and Paul is going to spend a very, very long time in chapter 4 figuring out just what all of this means when we look back and think about the Abraham story. So that's where we're going next. And maybe some of you aren't convinced very well right now. That's all right. God justifies by faith, not by you agreeing with Paul. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for the word that you have given us, even when we find it confusing. And we know that many of the people listening to this letter as it was being read in the church at Rome would have been scratching their heads or rubbing their chins or just sitting sideways and wondering, now hang on a second, how does that work? We know that when we encounter your word and when we are perplexed that we sit in a long tradition of people who read your word and are perplexed. And so we're grateful for the people who help us to understand We're grateful for the work of your Spirit who illuminates our reading of the Word that he inspired and who does that miraculously as we read and who does that through the people who are wise and learned. We're thankful for the fact that we are blessed to live in the time and place where we are, where we have so many resources available to us. We pray, Lord, that all of this reading and all of this hearing, all of this study would not simply be so that we can feel more comfortable or so that we can be more confident, so that we might end up boasting in what we know, but that we would be continually humbled by the reality of the grace that you shower upon us, that we would be grateful for the fact that you are making things right and that there's nothing that we can do that makes that happen, but that we have the privilege of partnering with you, empowered by your Spirit in that work of cosmic reconciliation that you are about and you have been about ever since we made it necessary. We pray, Father, that we would be your faithful servants. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.